Let me ask you to turn to Mark chapter 14 this morning. Mark chapter 14, we'll continue our study through this gospel of the life of Jesus Christ and now leading on to his death. We have been looking at the last week of the Passion, the week leading up to his death, and we had looked at this uh, Tuesday of the Passion Week in which Jesus took some time to talk to his disciples about what was coming. They had they had seen that the, the temple in Jerusalem was a beautiful structure and Jesus said, you know what, not one of these stones will be standing on another. They will all be destroyed. And so they wanted to know when this would happen. What would be the signs that this would come? And so they... they uh, they thought that those that the end of all things and the, the destruction of Jerusalem would happen at the same time. And Jesus tells them the answer to their question, but he really breaks it up into two parts. He says that, that there will be a time when when people will be against you, where you will have to stand before courts and before governors and rulers, and uh, you will have to suffer reproach for my name. And that was referring to the time which was leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and, and following that even in our day. And then he spent the rest of chapter 13 talking about the end of all things. That is, that, that we are to be on the alert because that day is coming. And no man knows the day or the hour and it could come at any time. So we have responsibility like the doorkeeper to be ready that we should not be found sleeping when, when Jesus returns. And so he uses that uh, this discourse on the Mount of Olives to instruct his disciples and to encourage them to continue on the, in the race when it seems like all things are falling apart, when when it seems like God's purposes are lose are 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 lost, or as if God is losing in this fight, and we need to be uh, sober and be vigilant and be on the alert because the Lord is coming and He will come in decisive victory. It will be obvious that He is the victor and He always has had everything under His control. So take heart. Now we move to Wednesday of the Passion Week in chapter 14. And Jesus takes some specific time to meet with His disciples and to teach them some more about His absence from them, His departure so let's begin reading in chapter 14 with verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 11. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, Not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii, and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she, what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, 
what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Our treatment of Jesus reveals how much we value him. I think that is the point of what we're going to see today in this passage. Our treatment of Jesus Christ reveals how much we value him. For the religious leaders, the most important thing for them was not Jesus Christ. We'll see what that is. But before we do that, let's look at the timing of this event. Verse 1 says that the Passover and the unleavened bread were two days away. Passover was a time of God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Turn to Exodus chapter 12. And most of us know what the Passover is about, but let's just refresh our memory here and uh, see this in Exodus chapter 12. We'll begin reading in verse 6. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight, that is, this Passover lamb. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails, <clears throat> and so on. And then they, they finish this whole, whole procedure up, and then look at verse 14. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And he goes on through the end of verse 20 to talk about this feast of unleavened bread. So what was happening here is that Israel was supposed to be remembering this event that was about to take place for them. Remember that they were supposed to sacrifice the Passover lamb and then take the blood, that was the night before, and then take the blood and before midnight put it on the doorpost and whenever the spirit of death would come, he would wipe out all the firstborn in the city except for those who had the blood on the doorpost. And then following that, they were supposed to observe. So this was supposed to happen year after year. In other words, they were supposed to sacrifice this Passover lamb in order to remember back to when they were saved by God from Egypt. And then following that Passover meal, which was happening every year on the 14th day of the month, the first month of the year, Nisan, they were supposed to observe this Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would would last for seven days. And that was basically to commemorate the idea that they were they were uh, removing the leaven from within their camp and that they were supposed to remember the time in which God had protected them. So turn back to Mark chapter 14. Because now this time of remembrance is near for Israel. And it was no coincidence that Jesus was sacrificed on the Passover. That He was sacrificed as that lamb because His blood would be applied to in a sense, our doorpost so that the wrath of God would pass over us 
that's the idea of Passover, that it would pass over us and the wrath would not be brought upon us. And so this time is near. And so we're two days away from both the Passover and the first day of the unleavened bread, which happened on the same day. Um, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread happened for another six days after. And so we are on Wednesday of Passion Week because Jesus was crucified on Friday, as you know. Notice the value of Jesus Christ to the religious leaders. He is of very little, if any, value to them. The middle of verse 1 says, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. So their main desire here is that they would kill him. They wanted to seek how they could take his life. And this is not new to what they were doing. Look back to chapter 3, verse 6. When they found out, when they were starting to see who this man claimed to be, they wanted him dead because it, his authority was in opposition to what they were trying to do. Chapter 3, verse 6. After Jesus heals this man with a withered hand, Verse 6 reads, The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 18. Jesus cleanses the temple here and the religious leaders were not happy. Verse 18 the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then chapter 12, verse 12, after Jesus gives this parable, say that, that I was given over to, I was com- coming to the vineyard to collect my father's produce, and yet I was beaten and killed. And that's exactly what's going to happen to me. Verse 12 And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he, Jesus, spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. They recognized that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God and that he was speaking against them and their rejection of God himself. And so as a result, they wanted to destroy him. Jesus was a public relations nightmare for these people. And so they had to figure out how they could destroy him. And so in verse verse 1 of our, our passage, they were seeking how to seize him by stealth. They were trying to do it secretly without turning the crowd against him. And that's really their, their goal. They don't want the crowd to turn against them. They want to destroy Jesus and still maintain the crowd's following of them. Look at verse 2. For they were saying, not during the festival, that is the Passover festival and the seven days of unleavened bread, Otherwise, there might be a riot of the people. So wait until that's over. Now what you have to understand is that during that time, uh, there would be a great influx of people coming to Jerusalem because it was required that every Israelite from all over Israel, not just Jerusalem, were to come to Jerusalem and sacrifice this Passover lamb. So the population of Jerusalem was said to be about 50,000 during that time, during the normal time. Uh, of the year, but but during the Passover feast, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when all of these males would have to come and would often bring their families, it would it would grow to potentially ten times that amount, or even even twenty times that amount, to five hundred thousand or a million people. And so it was a great uh, it was a great challenge to to try to get that crowd 
controlled, keep them under control, keep them quiet, not letting them know that Jesus was being killed as it was to after they left. See, after they leave, it goes back to the normal population and that would be a good time for us to sneak and take Jesus by force and kill him. And then if the crowd starts to come up against us, we can handle that. Religious leaders really were saw popularity as more valuable than Jesus. To their own, uh, to their own uh, demise, they, they see this, this popularity as the most important thing. They don't see that, that Jesus is at the center of what God is doing. And um, so for the religious leaders, it was popularity that was more valuable than Jesus. For the disciples, in verses 3 through 5, we see that poor people were more valuable than Jesus. Poor people were more valuable than Jesus. Verse 3, While he was in Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. Now, before we talk about the disciples specifically, I need to uh, help you see that verses 3 through 9, there is some discussion about when these events take place. Now, we just saw in verses 1 and 2 that it takes place on what day? On Wednesday, right? Before the, before the Passover, before the, the crucifixion. But verses 3 through 9 are in, uh, is the same story that you have in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And John seems to make it clear that this happened six days before the Passover, which would have been Saturday. So how could we have the same story being talked about in John as Saturday and here as Wednesday? There has to be some, uh, there has to be some way to reconcile these things since the Scriptures do not contradict. Um, clearly, verses 1 and 2 do speak of Wednesday, but what we have to recognize is that Mark is not working through a chronological sequence. He's trying to make a point. He's trying to make a point that at the beginning of his book, he's talking about the authority of Jesus Christ, that he has authority over all things. Then he transitions towards the middle, around chapter 9, he says, now, as of the authority of all things, he still is rejected. And what rejection means is, is ultimately crucifixion for him. And if we follow him, this is the point of the book, that, that we may be rejected too, that we will be rejected too. And so what he's saying is he's showing his betrayal here. And what we'll see as we continue on in our study over the next couple of weeks is that this, this whole chapter is really about Judas. It's about Judas and his betrayal of his friend, his close friend. And so I think Mark is doing here is he's not trying to give us a chronological sequence. Okay, this happened on Wednesday, and then on that day, this is what happened. Instead, what he's doing is what a lot of writers do. When you read regular novels, or if you watch a movie, or television shows, they have a flashback, right? They'll be showing you what's happening currently, and then there'll be a flashback to something that had happened before. This is what Mark is doing. And there's three reasons, or yeah, there are three reasons why I think that that is true. I believe that's true because, first of all, John is clear that it happened on Saturday, and he seems to be giving us a chronological sequence of events at that point. So I would take it as Saturday. second reason I think it's Saturday is because 
that the, the accounts of Mark and John are so similar that it would be hard to see two different stories. In other words, Mary and John pouring this alabaster vial of perfume on Jesus on Saturday and then another woman coming on Tuesday and doing the same thing, basically. And then thirdly, I think it is Saturday that Mark is giving us a flashback, flashback because um, it seems to be that the point of this passage is that Mary's love is in uh, stark contrast to Judas's betrayal. You see, the passage is about Judas, and yet he wants to show that, that look what Mary does. Look at how she values my life and me more than all other things. Okay, so that's kind of a technicality, but but you'll if you look, have a study Bible, you may uh, come across that type of idea. And I just wanted to kind of give you the the reasoning behind why I think that is that this is a flashback, verses three through nine. Now back to the disciples. The disciples seem to value poor people more than Jesus, and I say that because of the way that they scold this woman. They say they they say shame on you. We could have taken that. We could have taken that vial perfume, sold it, and then used that to give to the poor. And so, what did they value more than Jesus? It seems like they valued the poor people more than Jesus. They're here at the home of Simon the leper. We don't know a whole lot about him. Verse three calls him that. Um, other than that, he was a leper, and in their society, remember that lepers were unclean, so it would be. Uh, it would be impossible for a leper really to live in the city like Bethany where they were. Uh, so probably what happened is his, he was still known as Simon the leper even after he had been cleansed from that. In other words, Jesus may have healed him. We don't know for sure, but he may have been a leper at one time. Jesus healed him and he's known as, remember this guy all of his life he was Simon the leper, kind of like we call blind Bartimaeus. He was not blind his whole life, but we know him as blind Bartimaeus even to this day. The woman comes in. We know that this woman is Mary from John chapter 12. And she takes a vial of perfume that's worth 300 denarii and breaks it open. Apparently, she takes the whole bottle and pours it on the feet of Jesus. And we ought to be able to feel the frustration of the disciples here. Imagine that you had to run an errand for a few hours, and after you come back, you see a pile pile of letters that are to be sent out in the mail, and uh, you're asked to take those letters and put them in the mail. But then as you look at these letters a little bit more closely, you realize that the stamps on these letters are actually the stamps that you are collecting. They're your collectible stamps. And one of the stamps that you see on the letters was worth $500, and someone was using that to mail a letter. And you're thinking, are you kidding me? These these stamps are worth money. I could have sold them and used them for something good. You, you don't use it to mail it to somebody. To, to, to mail a letter to Grandma Johnson is just, a, what a waste. And that's what they say at the end of verse 4. The disciples, why has this perfume been wasted? Or you come home and you find out that the filet mignon steaks that you had out there thawing on the counter have been given to the dog next door to keep him quiet. Well, he really likes steak. But those are special to me. Those those are have great value to me and you're wasting them. And so so that type of frustration that you would have in those situations, multiply that by a hundred times. And this is about what the disciples are feeling because they recognize that this jar of perfume 
was worth 300 denarii. Now, we need to understand what the denarii is, is in order to understand their frustration. A denarii is worth one day's wage. How many poor people do you suppose could be, uh, could be fed for 300 denarii? Turn back to um, Mark chapter 6. And you'll get an idea here. How many poor people could be fed if that jar of perfume were sold for 300 denarii? Mark chapter 6. Remember, Jesus had been teaching all day. And because he recognizes that it's too late and they're not going to be able to get food for themselves, he needs to have the disciples feed them. This is where we pick it up in verse 37. But he answered them, that is Jesus to the disciples, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. And you know the rest of the story there, that Jesus feeds all the people out of this five loaves and two fishes. But... The point I'm trying to make is, is the value of 300 denarii. And verse 37 says, the disciples recognized quickly, based on the size of this crowd, what, what should we possibly do to feed all these people? Are we supposed to take 200 denarii, go into the city, buy all this food and bring it back? And their point was, we don't even have that much money. How could we possibly do that? And so they're probably just making a, a guess as to how much it would cost what they didn't recognize is they had Jesus there and that he was the bread of life and that he could provide whatever was needed in any situation. So back to Mark chapter 14. My point is, how many poor people could possibly be fed with 300 denarii, the price of the sale of this perfume? Thousands, right? We know that there are at least 5,000 at this feeding that we just looked at in Mark chapter 6. But we also know that that's just 5,000 men. So, so with women and children, it could be 20,000, 25,000, and that's only 200 denarii. And so what we're talking about is thousands, tens of thousands of people could have been fed for the price of this perfume. So imagine the frustration the disciples had. And notice um, their response. This really is the thought of all of the disciples, verse 4, but some were indignantly remarking to one another, now, we know from other passages, I think John records that it's Judas that actually said this, but I think Matthew records that, that all of them were thinking it. All of them were considering this in their own heart. Yeah, wait a second, why is this being wasted? Why would you waste that good perfume that could have gotten us some money? Mary must have been out of her mind. I mean, it would have been smarter to feed $20,000 to a donkey or, or, or to, to FedEx a, a block of gold to Santa Claus than for, for you to break a bottle of perfume and pour it over a person and waste it. The disciples rather would have seen the poor fed than for Jesus to be honored. And you know, there is a push in our churches and churches in our day, I should say, to meet the needs of our society. But you know, that responsibility should never should never should never take the place of sitting at the feet of Jesus like Mary does. 
Okay, we're reminded of Luke chapter 10 when she just sits there at the feet of Jesus and Martha's running around and she's going, Jesus, look at her. She's just sitting there doing nothing. A service should never take the place of sitting at the feet of Jesus and just listening to Him, of just worshiping Him. Now, that doesn't mean that we should never serve. It means that it never should take priority over our worship of Jesus. The ultimate thing that we can do in this lifetime and in the next is to worship Jesus. For the religious leaders, Jesus was worthless. He became a nuisance. He was no value. He was crimping their style. He was taking away their popularity. For the disciples, Jesus was valuable, but not as valuable as thousands of poor people. For Judas, Jesus was only worth a few coins. Look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And they began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. We often think of Judas as a surprise betrayer of Jesus. That all of a sudden he had this idea, here's my opportunity. I, I don't like him anymore. I'm going to betray him. But really, I think Judas joined the group of disciples for the very purpose of becoming great in his society, recognizing that Jesus was talking about setting up a kingdom. And if Judas could be one of his close followers, imagine the popularity, the power, the money that would come from doing that. And as he's starting to see this kingdom slip away, he didn't realize that this kingdom would be delayed, right? That, that Jesus was going away for a time and that this kingdom was not going to be till future. When he started to realize that, then his plan started to hatch. Well, he's worthless to me. He's not accomplishing my purpose. And so, if that's the case, if I'm not going to be seated on, in some place of authority, if I'm not going to receive great power and wealth as a result of following him, then he's, he's done with, for me. So I'll get as much as I can for him. And perhaps this final act, this act where he saw Mary pour this wasted perfume on Jesus, we find out in in another gospel, I think it is John, but he says that Judas actually wanted that money in the disciples' purse so that he could take from it. That wasn't going to go to the poor. That was just a disguise. He really was going to take for it. And perhaps... When he saw this money wasted in the way that it was, he thought, you know what? This is it. This is it. This guy has done enough, and I'm going to give him up to the authorities. And in verse 11, we find that he goes and talks to these chief priests in order to betray them. But, but why would the religious leaders need Judas anyway? Why couldn't they just go in secret and take him? But if you think about the situation, remember that they were trying to avoid a riot, verse 2 tells us, right? They're trying to make sure that people don't know about it. They want to do it in stealth, in, dis- in a discreet way. So, so they, need, they were planning to do it after the festival, festival, but what Judas was doing is Judas was allowing them to take Jesus before or during the festival. And this was even better for them because now they could take Jesus discreetly and, and uh, lay some charges on him and have him killed. But the problem is they couldn't capture him on their own. They didn't know where he was. I mean, Jerusalem was a big place full of lots of people. It'd be like trying to find somebody in the city of Detroit if you didn't know where they were. 
You could send out people all over the place, but you really need an insider to help you to find out where they are hiding. And so that's why I think Jesus is betrayed with a kiss. Judas is pointing out Jesus in the dark. They didn't have all this modern lighting facility or uh, uh, technology like we do. They maybe have had a lantern or something like that that they were coming with. Didn't give off a whole lot of light. So as Jesus is up there on the mountain praying and with his disciples, Judas comes up and he says, the one that I kissed, that's the one. That, that's how you will know because you won't be able to tell in the dark what he, who he is and which one to take. And so uh, Judas betrays him for a few coins. He's happy to accept a few coins and the Jews are happy to get rid of him uh, whatever the cost. But for Mary, Jesus was worth much more than popularity. He's worth much more than poor people. He was, he was, there was nothing, in fact, that was more valuable for Mary than Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. This perfume was stored in a vial that was probably closed in order to so that it wouldn't evaporate and you would break it was in a long jar uh, a jar with a neck a long neck on it and you would break the neck of the jar so that you could pour it all out in one application you find out in another gospel that it weighs about a, a, a pound so it's about a quart of, of perfume that is uh, poured onto his head and John also says it's poured onto his feet as well and she does this because she has great love for Jesus she wants to show her love to him the disciples scold her in verses 4 and 5, but then Jesus responds in verse 6. Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. We saw how that looks a lot like what Luke chapter 10 where Jesus scolds Martha for allowing Mary to sit at his feet. Verse 7, Jesus recognizes that she knows that he is more important than, than even the poor. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. Now, we can't miss what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that poor people are unimportant and that we have no responsibility to them. He's saying, I am more important than poor people. I am more important than service itself. And I will only be here for a short time, but the poor people will always be here. So serve me now. Mark 2 says, while the bridegroom is with them, verse 19, the, attitude, the, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they, so long as they have the bridegroom with them? There's no reason to fast when the bridegroom is here. And Jesus is saying, you have plenty of opportunities to serve other people. When you have the opportunities to worship at me my feet, that is the greatest, the highest thing that you can do. And then Jesus predicts his death again in verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Jesus pictures this as, a, as an anointing for the burial. Probably something that did not happen other than this time right here because you remember Jesus died a criminal's death so there was no time to give him an anointing. And after he died that death, he was taken to the tomb. Mary, the other two Marys, Mary Magdalene and Mary his mother, went to the tomb probably to anoint him at that point. And when they did, they found that the tomb was empty. So really, this is the only time in which Jesus is anointed before his death, or really as a part of his death. 
And Jesus is so approving of her act that He predicts great honor for her in verse 9. Truly, I say to you, wherever the Gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Jesus says, no matter where the Gospel is preached, people will know about Mary and what she did for me. And the very fact that Matthew and Mark and John record this story and that we're talking about it today proves His point. That we do know about this Mary because of her act of love. Not because of her greatness, but because of how much she valued her Savior. And that is a great thing to be remembered for, for how much we value our Savior. I want to make three points of application for us from this passage. Number one, there's nothing greater that we can do with our resources and with our time than to spend them on Jesus. Whether that be our money, our time, our abilities, there's nothing greater that we can do than to spend them on Jesus. If all the hours of your life, if every penny that came into your account that that was entrusted to you by God was spent in service for God and for Jesus Christ and for the advancement of the church, you would never look back and say, you know, I wish I would have spent more time watching The Price is Right. Or, I wish I would have spent more time at finding out about the current events in politics and, and, and finding out what was going on in, in my job. And I wish I could have saved more money so that I could have had a better house and a better car. You'll never regret that. If all of your time, all of your resources, all of your money is spent for God's purposes you will never regret giving your all to Jesus. As we have sung earlier, I surrender all. Fanny Crosby puts it this way in her hymn, Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name. She saw that the greatest thing in life was to serve Jesus. Number two, because there is nothing greater that we can do with our resources, We should never hold someone back from sacrificially giving themselves and their resources to the Lord. Because there's nothing greater, we should never hold someone else back from giving to Jesus like the disciples are trying to do. They're saying, hold on a second. Don't give give that to Him. We can give that to something else that, that would be of more value. Never hold someone back from serving Jesus. Do you see? And So that means for you, parents and grandparents, you have to be willing to give up your children and your grandchildren to the mission field on occasion. There may be a time when your child or grandchild decides, I want to go to the mission field and I want to serve Jesus with all that I have. And that may mean that I will have to give my life out there. Don't ever hold them back. You know, that's not really fair because I don't get to spend time with them. I don't get to see them as much. But you know, your time, your personal pleasures are not as important as the mission of Jesus Christ, as what Jesus is doing around the world. If that means that your child or grandchild has to move 10,000 miles away, then so be it. Because nothing is more important than serving Jesus. And the Gospel is at the center of what Jesus is doing. How much is Jesus worth to you? Turn to Mark chapter 8. How much is Jesus worth to you? Where where do you see yourself in this narrative? Do you see yourself as a religious leader or as the disciples who see that, you know, Jesus is kind of important, but not as important as some other things? 
or do you see yourself as Mary? Mark chapter 8, we'll read beginning in verse 34 in just a minute. But if someone gave you an all-expenses-paid retirement where you could live in a 2,000-square-foot house in Hawaii and the only requirement is that you could not go to, the ch- go to church for the rest of your life. You could not spend any time among God's people. Would you be willing to sacrifice your relationship with Christ in order to have that sort of personal comfort and pleasure? Or what if someone offered you the presidency of a large corporation or of the United States if you were willing to give up your relationship to Christ? Would you be willing to do it? Is it it pretty easy to set that sort of lifestyle aside for you? What is Jesus worth to you? What would you be willing to give up? What, What would you be willing to accept in order to give up serving Christ? Look at verse 34 of Mark chapter 8. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me In my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. You know, we are controlled by what we need. Isn't that true? We are controlled by what we need. And what we need is really based on what we want. And what we want is what we want. And so really we have to see what is at the center of our desires. What is our greatest desire? Is, is it your desire to grow in wealth or, or in popularity or in prestige among other people or even in this church? If so, then G- Jesus will be simply a means to an end like he was with Judas. I'll follow Jesus as long as he brings me some value. But when I see that value start to slip away, then I'm going to get rid of Jesus too because I'm going after something else. You know, that is the way that many of us in in our world live from day to day. Jesus is a means to an end. How can I get a better life? How can I have better health? How can I have a bigger bank account? How can I have uh, no problems in life? And And I'll follow Him as long as there's no problems in life. I'll follow Him as long as my bank account's big. I'll follow Him as long as I have good health. But, but if those types of things go away, then you can take Jesus with it. Because I'm not pursuing Jesus. I'm pursuing those things that I want. And so what is at the heart of this passage, really, is who will be worshipped? Who are we going to worship? For the religious leaders, it was public approval. They were worshiping their own desires, their, their own selves. For Judas, it was money. For Mary, it was Jesus Christ. He would be worshipped at, at, no, at, at whatever expense. And if Jesus is not at the center of worship, our worship, then we have succumbed subtly, albeit at times, to idolatry. We've dethroned 
Christ from the place that he rightly deserves and put something else in his place. And what you'll find is when, when tragedy comes, when you don't get that thing that you want, then Jesus will be quickly put aside. It is too easy to drift toward idolatry. John Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories. We constantly are making things to replace the spot of God, where God and, and Jesus Christ, who is the revelation of God in, the perfect, in a perfect way, where He belongs. See, Jesus demands exclusive worship. That He not be worshipped alongside of other things that you enjoy, but He be at the center of what you do. And that means that every part of life, our, our meeting together, our living, our eating, our drinking, whatever we do is all designed to be to have Jesus at the center of it. And if He's not, then we've succumbed to idolatry. Just like these figures that we've looked at in this passage today. Nothing can replace the love that we should have for Jesus. Nothing should replace it. And so let's ask God's help as we move towards this um, goal that He has set for us. Our great Father, You are worthy of all of our worship. And we praise You for Jesus Christ who has given us an example of how we ought to live. We're thankful for Mary who really in her actions have rebuked us because really we are a lot of times like those disciples. We hold on to the things that we think are most dear and and maybe even good things like helping the poor or like uh, accomplishing some program at this church or or some effort in our life. We would gladly uh, pursue those things. And sometimes we do it with the wrong motive. We, We do it to see those ends, that goal accomplished when really we should be seeking to worship Christ and it's never for us a waste to give up ourselves and our resources to Him. May you be honored in this uh, time in which we reflect on His life being given for us and may we participate in true worship as our hearts and our spirits are turned towards uh, Jesus Christ as He has been revealed to us in the Scripture. Help us to live for you and for him who died for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn 547 this morning. Give of your best to the Master.